Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show goes where you go to have those aha moments and mastermind meetings that can change your life and move you ever closer to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Sometimes on our episodes, you hear some ambient noise in the background, a car driving by, a bird chirping, conversation from the table across the room, because these are the places where it really happens. It doesn't happen in a sterile office or a soundproof studio. It's when you get out there, when you get out from behind a chair, you get out from behind the soundproofing and you go out and you have the encounters and you see things in the real world. Today, we're coming to you from my couch here in my apartment in Las Vegas, known to some, at least me, as the hottest city in America. And what we're going to discuss today, and we have a very interesting person who's going to share with us on this topic, it's about unlocking your business algorithm. And this is very important as the size and shape of your business evolve as you go down your trajectory of development, whether it be growth, whether it be shrinkage, just the changes that go along with it. Many of you don't know who tune in every week that the Business Creators Radio Show tends to serve the startup who's moving into revenue and the successful solopreneur who is evolving into having a leveraged organization with employees, virtual teams, contractors, etc. So these are just a couple of the inflection points that ventures go through as business creators achieve their goals. So I really want to focus on this thing about the business algorithm today and unlocking it. And to guide us through that, we have somebody I've been wanting to get on the show for a while now, and I'm so happy that our schedules collided finally. His name is Brandon Siegel. He's the CEO of Fly High Business Builders, President of well, excuse me, Wellness Works Management Partners, and COO of Every Child Achieves. He also hosts the Private Practice Survival Guide podcast. Wow. Brandon has nearly two decades of executive leadership experience, assisting businesses of all sizes in reaching new levels of commitment and success. Throughout his busy career, he has helped businesses all over the United States to build successful new operations and rejuvenate established ones. His success in his career led him to author the book, The Private Practice Survival Guide, A Journey to Unlock Your Freedom to Success. Brandon is passionate about helping health, wellness, and education practices create a business model that is successful and viable and reach operational excellence. And as you tune in and listen today with your pad of paper and two pens out to capture those aha moments and mastermind inspirations, discover what you will hear today that you can apply to whatever business you're in. 
And with that, Brandon Siegel, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Adam. It is a pleasure. And I'm coming from humid Florida, so we can match each other in heat uh, discomfort today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. So before we dive in, what I'd like to do is take a moment. I read off your official bio. It's so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here, and this is my show. I'll take a moment and have you tell us a bit in your own words something about Absolutely. your journey and what's brought you to where you are, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. So I truly, authentically, absolutely love entrepreneurship. I, from the second I was in diapers, my parents said I was, did, I was literally made to be a business entrepreneur. I grew up with a grandfather that was a business professor and actually um, created the original business plan with his uh, student of California Closets, which became an internationally recognized franchise. Um, and my entire life, I grew up around entrepreneurs, my parents, my uncles, my grandfathers, everything. And um, I always didn't know where I was meant to be, but I ended up graduating from college and kind of uh, fell into a business opportunity where I launched a successful collegiate licensing company for a manufacturer. And then from there, just kind of went from one entrepreneur to another and eventually becoming an entrepreneur. And now I work with over 700 entrepreneurs throughout the United States, really unlocking their business algorithm. So um, I love what I do and just love Literally, it's not even about money at this point. It's just the passion of the American dream. In my work, whether it's my business consulting or my primary line of business, which is working with entrepreneurs to help them launch their podcasts, their key networking, client attraction, celebrity X or branding tool under the auspices of what we call the podcast reach system, I make the bifurcation between results and goals. So applied to podcasting, we get so many folks who come to us wanting to launch their show and they've been told that the thing that's most important to them is to get lots of listeners and downloads and then you get these guests that say hey um you know uh I'm, i'd like to be a guest on your show but uh can you send me all of your download and listener statistics for the past 28 years so i can decide if uh, this is worth my time no goodbye uh so here's what happens i tell folks that listeners and downloads on your podcast are absolute bullshit that will destroy your podcast and leave you leave you standing on the corner while your competition zooms by. I actually have a more colorful way of putting that, if you can believe it. <laughs> that is a pattern interrupt that's designed to help people understand what's really going on behind these buzzwords and these patterns that they're given to repeat that are supposedly what they need and what they want. So what is a listener? A listener means somebody clicked the play button. What's a download? It means somebody clicked the link to download. Doesn't mean they listened to the episode. Doesn't mean they listened to a part of the episode, all of the episode, or even five seconds of the episode. Doesn't mean it was even somebody who was within that podcast avatar accessing it. I mean, if all we want is listeners and downloads, there are bot farm technologies that can manufacture that for you. It's, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. Now, if you think about sustainable activities, such as growing 
a fan following, developing a list, developing a social media community, using your podcast as a way of opening conversations that lead to more closed deals and more expanded opportunities. And as I like to say, most of all, making the experience for your guests interesting and fun, you will build sustainable listener and download factors over time. So rather than pursue the goal of a little more listeners and downloads, and yeah, I say that sarcastically for a reason, when you pursue the goals of a sustainable podcast that attracts what it's supposed to attract per its avatars and goes after its goals of supporting your business development, your networking, your client attraction, your celebrity expert branding, you will in all likelihood get the results of more listeners and downloads over time. So we just change results to goals. To me, that is, and I'm going to use your terms a little bit, maybe a little bit into this whole idea of business algorithm hacking or unlocking your business algorithm. But let's start by having you define that term. Business algorithm, what are we talking about? So at the end of the day, if we look at it, um, our business algorithm is the formula of which we reach our objective. And one of the things I always talk about is, you know, a lot of people at the end of the day, they say, well, is, um, is building a business all about money? And I'm going to be honest, if business is all about money, you're going to be left off really unhappy in life. There's more to life than money. Money is fuel. And so I say, our business is a vehicle of change. We're trying to get to a destination. Now, that destination may include things like financial freedom and whatnot, but we need fuel to get to that destination. And so how are we building a formula that includes our vehicle of change reaching our ideal destination and creating the fuel needed to get there? Right. So now I'm starting to hear a little bit about change management being put into this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's an area that's an area I've been playing in for a long, long, long time. So I recall back in the days, this is very early in my entrepreneurial career, when e-learning was the hot new thing. And there was this cartoon that seemed to show up in everybody's PowerPoint presentation that showed the director of training and development meeting with the CEO and the CEO saying to the T&D director, I'm not sure what an e-learning is, but since you say our competition has it, get us two of them. Yep. Yep. No, I, I mean, it's so true. And at the end of the day, we we sometimes focus too much on what everyone else is doing and, and leading to your point of we often are trying to model others versus creating our own success. And I when we look at the best entrepreneurs out there, like leaders in the game, they're innovators. And somewhere along the way, we've lost our sight as innovating our own business algorithm, finding out our why and delivering results. That takes us to an interesting question. What is your why for doing what you do? And I I don't mean the socially approved program dancer, but the Mm -hmm. thing that actually gets you off your ass and motivates you. What is it? You mentioned that it's something other than money, but tell us, what is that? Absolutely. So first and foremost, I I do private practice and entrepreneur coaching and consulting and all that. And I'm going to be very real. I do it because it fills my bucket. I do not do it for the money. 
plain okay. and simple. There are other ways I make money. And so for me, I was born with two grandfathers that were products of the depression. And they instilled at me at a young age that in order to create greatness in this world, we need to have entrepreneurship and the American dream. And I am fighting so tirelessly with passion and purpose to unlock that game because, you know, even with what's going on with COVID and everything and this idea of like, I want to work 30 hours a week and make six figures. Like, I just don't buy into that recipe. I'm being honest. And so every day when I wake up, um, regardless of money, I want to help entrepreneurs literally change their trajectory. I want to create solutions that are changing this world. And I think entrepreneurship is one way that we change the world. And so whether that's, you know, creating uh, a new form of healthcare, because one of my personal passions is to solve the healthcare crisis um, or creating new technology and innovation. Bookmark, bookmark healthcare crisis. If we have time at the end, I want to run something by you. Go ahead. Okay. Or ultimately changing the way that businesses function. And I think that's really critical. You know, I got an email over the weekend from a client that I work with, and she said, you know, I'm not sleeping, I'm really stressed and whatnot. And part of my joy is helping her unlock a new mindset so that that stress turns into fuel and she's able to let go of the fear that's creating that stress so that she can continue on her entrepreneurial journey because she got into this for the right reason. And today I worked with someone that said, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm looking to open my own business. And I, I kind of got to the root cause and the why. And I said, your number one trajectory is you want to make money. That's not enough to fuel purpose and fulfillment. We have to get beyond that. The business can be part of that. But if you're just looking to make more money, I'm going to be honest, a lot of the times the algorithm is wrong because you get upset by how much work it takes to be successful in today's world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, I'll answer for myself. Uh, I get most motivated when I have an enemy to destroy. <laughs> so you're a competitor. You like to compete. Well, not not a business competitor. Uh, yeah. I don't compete with other podcast launch agencies. I, okay. The podcast reach system is something very unique. It's for a specific type of client. I have gotten all kinds of quote unquote friendly advice and constructive criticism about it. And I've told all these people that I did not pay them for coaching. Therefore, they do not have the credit with me to even make comments on it unless they're looking to invest in it. So that being said, what I mean by an enemy is to destroy is somebody or something that's getting in the way of either myself or my market and my customers. So right now, as the time we're having this conversation, my enemy are the incompetent, arrogant idiots who run the community I live in, who if we're almost into August, we're in the middle of the hottest summer Las Vegas has had in over a decade. And for no logical reason, the changes every single day, they still have not given us access to any of our amenities. Mm. So my goal is to find a new place to live. And being laser focused on what I need to have happen to create that for myself, to create me having a new place to live mm -hmm. is what pushes me what gives me something, gives me specific hard targets because I need to have certain financial things in place in exactly the right way to align certain things with 
my business and financial profiles for supporting documentation and to tour lots and lots and lots of other apartment communities. Rather than pick the first one that looks good and do it the last minute, since I know I have about a five-month lead on, lead on this before my lease expires, this time I can do it methodically through research, through comparison, and by continuously educating myself on the market so that I can make a much better decision because home is where the heart is. Now, let's translate this to some of my clients. I have a client uh, who has a business where he teaches men how to meet women. Uh, and succeed with women, however you want to, however you want to define that. So his market enemy are the romance racketeers. These are the folks that get men to supplicate to buy expensive gifts and convince them that they're inferior unless they spend all kinds of money on flowers, dinners, show tickets, uh, ridiculous workout plans and everything else in the hopes of impressing that woman that she might allow him to say hello to her someday. Those are the romance racketeers. I had another client for three years. She's fantastic. And her work has to do with helping people identify and break generational patterns and inherited traumas that come through family dynamics. So her enemy became the healing hecklers. These are the folks that say, that was a long time ago. Get out of it. Or grow up or be a man, be a woman. Or, well, if you think that's bad, you should imagine this. That's heckling. That's not honoring the healing process. So they became the healing hecklers. Hmm. So, th- so I gave you an example for myself and from a couple others. I know people candidly and, and who will come out and say this, that what drives them every day is every day that they see- succeed in business is another fuck you to the people who told them that never amount to anything. Mm -hmm. That's, and I, that they come out and say it, and I'm coming out and saying, I am the voice of our listeners. That that's it for some people. For you, you have things that drive you that speak more to altruism. And what's beautiful about the human condition is we can all take different approaches. Neither one is more or less valid than the other. I, I want people to be able to create and own their future and creating independence where you, you don't have to rely on others. And so for me, I, I grew up with this mindset of what entrepreneurship means, not just in money, but in change, change in humanity. And so, I, you know, again, it could be idealistic, but I also cannot relate with what you're saying because I was the person that almost flunked out of high school uh-huh. and found no meaning in what school represented and had to redefine my purpose at same. the age of 18 to same, same, same. really, really fuel myself to be something and not just sit on a couch and, 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 and watch TV all day and like really find meaning beyond just being, I guess is my point. Right. So-called high school was like prison to me. When I graduated, I had nothing that prepared me for the actual world. So as I have said many times, my life actually started when I was 18. Mm-hmm. It's like the stuff that comes before it really doesn't even count. I mean, yes, I understand that it's impactful, but as I see it, I drew a line at a certain point and everything that came before it, if it 
bubbles up over the surface, as things sometimes tend to do. It's simply an issue to be answered or a problem to be quickly resolved rather than something that drives me or motivates me. So I had the opportunity to go to college and completely reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. Going to college and was not really for me so much about academics, although I did do very well academically, but it was about breaking out of the patterns that I had been trapped within up until then. The opportunity to explore, the opportunity to try out being different variations of myself, different lifestyles, different scenes. Yeah. And discovering new points of view. 100%. And, and I think for me, what I needed was I needed to know that I was making a choice versus being forced. Yeah. And I needed control. And I, I felt I had no control in high school. I, I, I felt like everything was a system that you either fall in line or you fall out. And that didn't work for me. And you so felt like it, it was, <laughs> it was a, it's the Prussian educational system. It's all about creating useful servants of the state. It's command and control, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it really, college was the first opportunity where I had to choose to show up and I had to choose to make something of myself. Yes. And I got to control what classes I took and where I wanted to be and what teachers I wanted to specialize in. And if I didn't want to take chemistry, you're not going to push chemistry down my throat. I'm going to pick the things that are meaningful to me and right. that develop me as a functional person. And I think that's something we're we're sometimes missing is what, what is our role from a functional basis in this world? Yeah, that's one of the things about college. Now, I have my own issues with the ridiculous general education requirements and how you spend most of your time basically repeating what should have been taught to you in high school. But one of the choices that I was able to make was to look at these courses that were being foisted upon me, aware that, at least at Penn State, I'm not sure if it's done at every college. I actually had two GPAs running, one for overall and one for the major. Mm -hmm. so, if I so, if I so if I took an occasional hit on some gen ed class I couldn't give a rat's ass about, I was now choosing to do that. I've told the story many times. I won't belabor it here, but it's on other episodes where I looked at my grades going into the final in a geology class and figured out that I needed a 46 on the final to get a B for the class. But in order to get into A range, I needed a 93 for an A minus. So I, I went in there. I filled out enough of the exam to give myself what I thought was about 55%. I was the very first one to hand it in. The professor gave me a knowing look and I walked out. Mm -hmm. I got an A. In geology. There you go. Because I didn't know there was a curve. If I'd known about the curve, I wouldn't have taken the final. But the point is, in college, you get to make those value decisions. Absolutely. And you figured out your success algorithm in that school. No one was dictating what you needed to do. You figured that out. You had that algorithm planned out what you needed to do to get the product and outcome you wanted. By that point, by that point in my education, I was finally at the point where I was at long last taking some classes in my major. They deserved 
required and needed my attention, my energy, my focus. So that's where I put it. This gen ed class on, yeah, okay. So I so I learned how erosion happens and I can describe to you how to create a thunderstorm. Okay, I could have learned that on the internet. I had to pay eighteen hundred dollars to learn how to do it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull an all-nighter on that one. I'm gonna skip out on the night at the bars at Penn State. Okay, yeah, not in this lifetime. <laughs> so we so we're having some fun uh topics about real world issues, colloquial things. And what I want to do is I want to take some of these themes of choice, of looking at things differently, of looking at what truly deeply motivates us, not the acceptable answer or the socially approved answer, but the visceral answer. And let's look at what, in your view, Brandon, is the key to building a sustainable brand? Let's start with branding. The key to building a sustainable brand in today's environment. I think it's got to have meaning and 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 be clear. I think brand is all about meaning and and authenticity. There's so much crap out there that we're trying to show what we want people to see versus creating a real magnet. And so I talk about everything in branding is about a magnet that doesn't just attract what you want, but it pushes away what you don't want. And I yes. think we're sometimes afraid to push away what we don't want. I don't get that from you, Adam. I think you're very clear on, hey, this is me take it, leave it, you know, and if you don't like it, get the fuck out, so to speak, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're very good at creating your magnet to attract what you want in that sense. I'm doing a fast clap, not a slow clap. (laughs) Got it? Exactly. And you kind of hit the nail on one of the things about me. I tend to view things through humor and what I call sit down comedy, which is sometimes laced with the occasional naughty word. That's how I communicate. And when I am in that place, that's where you know that my brilliance and my passion are flowing through. If that's going to be a problem for you, then find somebody else. You know, I have disqual- I've disqualified prospects on discovery calls because they didn't laugh at my jokes. You, like, you, you, got you, know, it. If you, if you don't get my humor this early on, uh, all of our interactions are going to be stilted. It's not good for either one of us. Exactly. You got to be in sync. And so that rhythm of, of how you communicate is essential in any client. So I totally get that. And that's why I say fit. The reason why we do discovery calls is not about sales. It's about fit. Yeah. Discovering about each other. Yes. Discovering. So um, you have defined some strategies. I think there are three of them for defining a business algorithm. Let's come back to that. So that you can optimize a business model. And I know that's kind of a loaded question. So take it away. Okay. So three strategies in optimizing your business algorithm. The first thing you need to do is you need to actually know where are you trying to go? What is your end result? And I say this mm-hmm. because I know there's a lot of solopreneurs out there for you to go from solopreneur to that next level, you need to look at, are you willing to take on the infrastructure of people and all that come with people? And so first thing is identifying where you're going. The second thing is you have to identify at what cost. And so what are the things that I'm willing to sacrifice? We sometimes forget that in order to get somewhere, we actually need to sacrifice something. And And then we need to also understand the nuances. So the third strategy that I want to mention is I really think it's important for you to 
to be able to create a roadmap and really break down. I, I believe that in business, we sometimes run so hot in emotion that we forget the formula in everything. And I sucked at math straight up, was terrible yeah, at it. Same and here. Now, all I do is math. I'm being honest with you. And you're like, why? Well, at the end of the day, I need to have I need to have data to make decisions because my emotion, I am a redheaded, hot-blooded person. If I were to make decisions off of my emotion, I would literally be living on the street truly because <laughs> emotionally I'm just that reactive. And yeah. so part of building a business algorithm is being able to be methodical in how we execute strategy, how we implement executive function skills, and how we optimize our overall trajectory in what we do. So the first thing that I like to ask when people are trying to find their why or whatnot is, are you trying to create a business that works for you or are you trying to create a job for yourself? And my number one objective is helping people understand that creating a job for yourself comes with a lot of problems. And it doesn't mean you have to have employees, but I always say create something that works for you. Something that at the end of the day is generating revenue and generating impact beyond just your time. And so I know, Adam, you're, you're working with a lot of people who have podcasts and stuff like that. Ideally, that podcast is being created because when you are sleeping at night, it's still generating something for you in some capacity, whether that's a lead gen, whether that's advertising revenue, whether that's product sales, whatever that is. But sometimes we forget in our business algorithm that it can't just be all about us. Right. Right. And I, th and I, I think that's the case. Now, I was never any good at advanced mathematics, and I'm still not. So uh, that's perfectly fine. I pay people to be good at that stuff. I developed other ways of acquiring data. It's just not a skill that I have. In your case, you made the decision to acquire master and learn to, whether it's enjoy or at least appreciate the skill, because it's key to your success. And to Absolutely. me, that's where, and to me, that's where most learning comes from until we see the relevance of it in a way that it interests us and is even fun we're not going to get motivated to do it so even back 25 30 years ago i knew i was never going to be in a profession or a career that required me to know the first damn thing about algebra and trigonometry which were the only two things i ever struggled with everything else i could do easily it was just those two things yeah. And yet I was spending up to 90% of my time struggling to pass those classes and missing out on the joys of going deeper in other subjects where I was already doing well. Absolutely. Now, something that you said, and I think it was interesting, is that you were talking about how you want to destroy, you know, the enemy. And yes. I think at the end of the day, you want to solve problems that unlock uh what I'm going to call is greater mobility so that you're not having the adversity or barriers, if that makes yes, sense. That makes dollars sense. So for me, what I like to do is I like to give you the structure so that you can run and knock down every barrier and not feel like you have to try and hurdle every objective that's in front of you. Sometimes it's about learning when you need to deke and dunk versus hurdle. And so that's where I think that algorithm is, is creating that roadmap of what can I pay my employees? What is acceptable? I don't care what the employee wants other than the fact that they may not be right for my magnet, but 
just because someone wants $60,000 doesn't mean that I should pay them $60,000. And so right. how are we creating that structure so that, hey, I need five employees. This is what I need. Take it, leave it, want it, whatnot. But sometimes we rule with emotion of, I really like them and they seem like they know what they have. And you know they're saying they want a living wage. Well, they have to produce a value for that living wage. And sometimes we get so stuck in the emotional component that we lose sight on whether it actually is pushing us closer to our final destination as a business. Yeah, you you raise some very, very good points there. So let's get into talent attraction since we have we're one of the themes that we're dealing with is that transition from solopreneurship to having a leveraged organization. So in your experience, in your view, and in your work, what do you find to be the secret to attracting top talent and retaining top talent in one of the most challenging workforce environments we've had in a long time? So first of all, I'm not going to hire to hire. So I will literally, I'll, I'll, I'll run, you know, I'll run through walls without someone before I will hire what I call bad talent. And when yeah. I call bad talent, it's not actually about skill set. It's about their intention, their ethics, their integrity, uh, their, their, their strength of character. If I have the right strength of character, I can train everything else. But when I'm getting someone that applies and is like a know-it-all and like, you, you know, you, you are, quote unquote, you owe me because I am granting you with my presence, that's when I'm like, you know, here's the door, get, get out. I would rather that, that, you know, I don't know if you read the book, The Ideal Team Player, but there's three virtues that they mentioned that I think are just so important. The first virtue is they have to be humble. It's so important. I don't care how great you are. You can be the Tom Brady of this world, but humbleness goes so far. So I look for humble people. The second is they have to be hungry. If they're just looking for an easy road, like, pay me as much as I want. And I want to do as little as I can get out. There's the door. And then the third thing is they have to have emotional intelligence. They have to be able to relate, communicate, understand people, read signs, understand that, you know, Hey, when you walk through the door, your, your body language has meaning. You know, when you're on a zoom call with me, your body language has meaning what we do, how we do it and where we're going. So that's the first thing is I want to find people that have those three virtues. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing is I want to find out where them, they themselves are a vehicle of change where they're trying to get in this life. And if it's all about money and like whatnot, usually they're not right for me. I need someone with high purpose. And so I actually tap into um, the founder of Zappos, who's in your, was, you know, he's no longer with us, but the company is still in Las Vegas. Yes, it is. He he talks about, uh, happiness in the workplace. And I think it's so true. And essentially you need to be, you have to have a purpose that everyone ultimately is drawn to. So are they drawn to your purpose? The next thing that he talks about that I think is is really, really critical is they have to feel connected. They have to be part of something bigger than themselves. And so I need people that are not just siloed, but that want to feel connected and be part of something, even in a remote work environment. And then the third thing, and this is the most important thing, is they they want to progress. Every day they have to feel like they're making change, that they're feeling progress, that they're growing. All three of those things are critical in the fundamentals of the employees that I bring into my workplace. Yeah, 
now, I recall when I was in MBA school, and one of my professors in one of my business classes asked the class, what is, what is the most important thing for a business to do? Or what is the purpose of a business? Actually, uh, yeah, it was the second thing. What is the purpose of a business? And I raised my hand and I said, purpose of a business to make money and develop profits. Now, he went off on this tangent for like 10 minutes saying that that was the dumbest thing he ever heard. And that that's like saying that we, that human beings live to breathe. Well, without money, a business is not going to survive. And if it's not returning a profit, it is not delivering returns to its shareholders, which it will then lose and it'll collapse. Mm-hmm. And human beings, if we don't breathe, we're dead. Mm-hmm. Not in a matter of hours or days, in a matter of minutes, we're dead. We don't breathe. Mm-hmm. That being that being said, uh, now we're getting into, at least what I'm picking up, is a bit of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, right there at the very bottom, there's making money. Uh, after all, if you have somebody who's working for you and the salary or the wage you're paying them is not even enough for them to make ends meet, believe me, you are losing a lot of their productivity and energy while they stress about whether or not they're going to be able to pay the rent. Yeah. So, so I call you gotta, that- You got to ge- cover that. Yeah, I call that generating fuel. So in order for our vehicle to go, we have to generate fuel because otherwise we have no one helping us get to the destination. So you're right. The foundation is fuel. It doesn't matter how great, you know, if, if you're driving a Tesla and there's no electricity, I don't care how great that car is. It ain't moving. I drive a Mazda six grand touring edition. And if that does not get its premium unleaded, it is not moving. Yes, exactly. And, and, and if the little battery in my key fob is dead, nothing happens. Exactly. As in literally. Because that, that's, that's, that's where the security is. A little secret I learned last year by unfortunate accident. I mean, unfortunate accident that fortunately happened in my own parking space right downstairs. <laughs> if the battery in your key fob dies, you have one of those push button ignitions. You, yeah. can, push that bu- you can push that button. So your hair falls out. Your car ain't starting. So let me ask you this. Is the purpose of a car to burn fuel? Purpose, uh, it needs to burn fuel in order to achieve its purpose, which is to deliver you on your journey from your origin point to your destination. And so there you go. I say that's the same with business. Uh-huh. Yeah, so there's room for everything in terms of how we define it and put it in this place. Yes, yes. a business has to make money. Yes, people 100%. work for you because they're there to make money. And believe me, if they're not making ends meet and they don't feel like they're being adequately compensated, sooner than later, they're outskis. And you then you just got another hit on your uh, retention and turnover stats. And as I say in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. And I say this so eloquently and so... And so lovingly, turnover is a bitch on your bank accounts. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so at the end of the day, it's evaluating their needs, wants, desires, and understanding the exchange that they seek out. So there is a world where we could attract someone for 70000 a year, making, making 70000 and they only have to work 32 hours a week versus 85000 and work 40 hours a week. Some people are willing to sacrifice 
the the total pay in order to have greater work life balance. That's so me. We have to just, That's me. We have to understand yep. the exchange that is meaningful to them, so yeah. that we deliver the results. Because at the end of the day, if I pay you six figures, but I'm making you work sixty hours a week, you're going to resent me. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, make it lower six figures with four days off. I'll be much happier. There you go. I mean, I'm so I'm, you're I'm, willing I'm, to I'm sacrifice a, money yeah. for I'm other things. And, and that's my point is yeah. we have to figure out each employee's internal needs, wants, desires. Now, here's the deal. If if I'm only paying you what I'm calling, you know, um, soup money, where you're literally eating soup every night, you're not going to be at your best. Damn I don't right think I have not. to deliver. I don't have to deliver filet mignon to you every night, but I need to have some chicken, some vegetables, some, 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 you know, maybe a little bit of carb that gives you some, some fuel. And then obviously every once in a while, throwing something in that surprises you. And the surprise is the thing that we often miss. We sometimes get so complacent that we stop surprising our employees and they get complacent. That. Uh, more factual words I have not heard in a very long time, but yeah. So let's uh, you know go back a bit to this business algorithm thing. And one of the points that you made very early on in our conversation is that this algorithm changes over time as the business evolves. How do we yeah. how do we track and optimize those changes? So we have to understand that the environment is always changing. And so we have to assess, in my opinion, quarterly, I'm actually evaluating that business algorithm, both in financial means, but also meaningfulness to our staff. How many people have seen a change in their staff since COVID hit two years ago? All of them. Everyone. So imagine if you did not update your business algorithm during COVID. Imagine if you expected the same output and you are putting in the same input. What I'm saying is the fuel line has shifted. What they need has shifted. What their exchange, what's meaningful, where they're at. Are we increasing our, our sick pay to them? Are we increasing our compensation or our time off? What are we doing or changing away the functions? And it's interesting because a couple of weeks ago, I had a staff meeting with my team. And I've got uh, just under 100 employees for one of my organizations. And one of my employees was, was so upset, was fueling upset. And at the end of the day, she was upset because she felt she couldn't say it eloquently, but I'm going to say it eloquently. At the end of the day, the expectations of her in today's environment are not fair. They're not reasonable. And I have to reevaluate her function output because I'm asking too much of her. And when I acknowledged that and I changed her whole workflow of how her role was to be run, all stress, all animosity, and all anger went by the wayside to say, I've been heard, I feel valued, and now she's actually outproducing what she did before because I shifted the business algorithm for her role. Yeah, it's not funny. You just make people feel like they're heard and you, you feel like that you feel like you care and you don't you feel make them feel like you're not lying to them or stringing them along. How yep. easily you can command their loyalty, command their dedication. As I, so I, think, I, I, yeah, as I tell people, if you have an office environment, 
be mindful of what your cubicle dwellers have in the drawer to the right of their desk or their, or their chair. If you were to open that drawer and you see a copy of their job description printed out, stapled with uh, the corners bent, wrinkles, coffee mug stains on it, that's how you know they've already written you off. If you have yeah. an employee that used to complain about everything or that always had ideas that went against the grain and you beat them down enough with this org chart of yours or whatever uh, and ran them through the ringer on, oh, you didn't CC senior management in the correct order when you sent that email and have three meetings to plan meetings to discuss the meetings about uh, meetings about the implications of that oh, so tragic thing. They're going to get to the point where they'll turn in everything they're supposed to and they'll do good work, but they're not working over. They're not doing any extra and they are looking for a new job or they've suddenly gotten a lot more intense about that side hustle and making that their main thing. Or, and this is my other point, what would happen, Adam, if I took a bottle of Tabasco sauce and dumped it in your water line into your house right now? Would you taste Tabasco? Probably not. But over the course of time, it's going to taint your water. Am I wrong? You are absolutely correct. I live in a hard water zone. Uh, I could uh, tell you stories about tainted water. <laughs> okay. So my point is, when we're not catching the root cause of creating what I'm going to call is like a lack of job sa satisfaction or creating additional stressors, um, we're, we're allowing Tabasco sauce to taint the organization's water. And if I were to taint someone's water... It would take me flushing out the entire water system to remove the toxicity. And so we need to get more proactive in understanding just because the job functions worked last year does not mean the job functions work today. Our environment's evolving. People are changing. There's different stressors. And when we think just because it happened before, it will happen today, it makes sense, it makes no sense. And even something like I used to have this real upset with my leadership because they used to set a standard for everyone where they're like, everyone should be able to do this. And I would say, well, why do you think everyone should be able to do this? And they would say, let's just for round, round ideas. Everyone should be able to type a thousand words a minute or whatever. Well, why? Yeah. Well, this person can do it and that person can do it. So why can't everyone do it? We're all programmed differently. It's not fair yeah. for me to set a baseline because two people can do it, therefore everyone should do it. We have to understand each person's individual talent and what they can execute and bring out the best. And sometimes we're approaching entrepreneurship like a business in a box. And I think it's a mistake, I do. And that's the one issue I have with franchise models today is that I think this business in the box does not work in every state with every employee, with every, you know, I do believe each business has its own unique business algorithm. Yeah. Well, going back to this whole thing about patterns and things that have come before, you've heard the story about the man whose wife cut off the ends of the roast before she put it in the pan. Yes. Okay. So, you know, that he went and asked, you know, she said it's because it makes the, the roast uh, tender, juicier, more delicious. And her mother taught her that. So he went and asked his mother-in-law and he told her the same thing and that her mother taught her that. And lo and behold, the grandmother-in-law is still around 
And uh, she said, reason we did is because during the Great Depression, we couldn't afford a bigger pan that want the kids to think we were poor. Exactly. Couldn't have said yeah. it better. So many rules, regulations, policies, and ways we do things are permanent solutions or reactions to short-term blips on the radar driven by people who have this need to assert their authority so that people feel it all day long. Yep. And let me ask you, Adam, what makes you put the top grade fuel into your car? Actually, I just normally do the 87, but once a month I run through a 91. Uh, that's okay. That's been recommended practice for like the last four cars I've had is uh, every fourth or fifth tank, uh, just run through the high quality stuff. Otherwise you're fine with the 87. But the reason I do that is because every so often it's a good idea to get some cleaner fuel running through there and it helps to purify things a little bit. Also, you know, there's other ways you can go about this. Uh, you can do fuel injector cleaner or fuel additives, but doing that is more like solving a problem once it's been created rather yep. than a simple preventive measure to reduce either the likelihood of it happening or the rate at which it happens. In the case of running through an occasional tank of premium, that's more like preventive in reducing the long-term buildup of gunk on your fuel injectors. Eventually you're going to have to run the cleaner anyway, but it puts off that day. In the meantime, you have a more efficient vehicle, even if by a margin. So you're playing the long the, the, the long range goal, which yeah. is building longevity. Yeah. And so sometimes we're so in the here and now that we're only focused on 87 and throwing sand in our tank. And I think we've got to look at how are we creating preventative and proactive measures to create longevity in our business model? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. So we have about six or seven minutes left, and I think we've pretty much covered most of this topic. And in, in a few minutes, I'm going to give our listeners an invitation for them to discover more about how this works. But in the meantime, you mentioned the health crisis. So what do you think is our health crisis right now? I have a very unique answer to this, but I want to hear yours. So I'm going to, so I want to preface this by, this is not a political statement. So I want to be very clear. That's cool. I think our, our healthcare system, there's no transparency. And I'm just being real. We've got insurance yeah. carriers that own the marketplace of how things are funded. We have a society that, that does expect well, we have a society that's paying into healthcare coverage that we don't know what we're getting. And we've got providers that are the effect of the funding source. And I think that's really hard because there's no transparency in, we don't really know what our doctors are getting paid. The charges are fake. They're, they're inflated charges. We don't know what the real allowable is. And uh -huh. so we're also not really focused on, I'm going to be honest, we have not decided if healthcare is a free market enterprise or a government regulated enterprise. And right now we're running it as if it's a free market, but it's not really a free market because we're dependent on these insurance carriers that if all of a sudden you said, hey, insurance companies can't show a profit. And I'm not saying to say that, but I'm saying the whole game would change. The whole game would change. So I believe part of the problem is 
we either have to really embrace that this is a free market and people can choose and finance their healthcare how they want, or we have to look at what does socialized medicine look like. And I'm not saying I'm not advocating for socialized medicine, but I'm saying we're we've got a, a society that thinks that's the answer, and we're providing this kind of hybrid government regulated insurance algorithm that I'm being honest, the providers are losing and the patients are losing. The only one winning right now is truly the insurance companies. Well, you know, as soon as they called the Affordable Care Act and you knew it was coming from the government, you knew it was going to be anything but. Yep. And that actually is not a political statement per se. Nope. Uh, that is that is just a and that is just a commentary on the use of oxymorons and how government morons name just about everything. Like well, what, like whatever whatever it is and projected it is and vice versa. So I, I offer health insurance to every one of my employees. And I yeah. want you to know that every year I go through on average a 10% premium increase yep. every year, no matter what. Yep. And here's the thing. I work with healthcare providers. The average healthcare provider has not seen a 10% increase in the reimbursement rate in the last 10 years. So you tell me what's happening. Every year, the insurance is able to get 10% above on the premium, but in 10 years, we're not even seeing a 1% increase in reimbursement rate. There's something wrong. Well, uh, in the in the 20 some years since I graduated from Penn State, average cost of a college education by some majors is quadrupled. Yep. Funny thing though, minimum wage hasn't quadrupled. The uh, average starting salary upon graduation hasn't quadrupled. And uh, cost of living has also gone way up, but wages and salaries haven't come anywhere near keeping up with that. It's yep. the same thing. It's uh, I, could, I could go on and on and about it. But my answer to what is our greatest health crisis is trypanophobia. And you're asking what trypanophobia is. Yeah. Uh, for, for, for our listeners, that is a... The simplest way to describe in one sentence is the fear of hypodermic needles. Interesting. An estimated 50 million Americans live with trypanophobia to some degree. 50 million Americans. We're not even going to the rest of the world. When you have a trypanophobic reaction, and I have this myself, very severe case of it, actually, this is not something you grow out of or you be a man or be a woman about. When you have the reaction, you spontaneously and completely outside your control feel a constricting feeling on your neck, cutting off oxygen to your brain. Everything goes white and you get all clammy. And then the next thing you know is you wake up 10 minutes later wondering how the hell you got to where you were. This is, wow. this is not a minor thing. You ha When you live with trypanophobia and you look at and you're told that uh well we need to run a blood test uh to determine if you have something you start looking at even if i have that thing what are my chances of living and if they're decent might not even get the blood test this translates into skipping out on even routine and preventive medicine it translates into making decisions like, and this is not political, but even if it may sound that way, it's like, oh, um, this thing, 
has a 99.97 survival rate. Uh, and like 28 of 30 people I know who have had it said it felt like just a couple days of having the flu. Well, fuck, I'll take the COVID over the vaccine. And then you wonder why vaccination rates are not as high as they say they should be. When you take this thing you're looking to impose upon people, even at the rate where some feel that you're violating their bodily integrity, and you call it the jab. That's why I say trypanophobia is our greatest health crisis. Because it is something that is so severe and so frightening that people will skip out on medical procedures, will skip out on testing, will skip out on vaccinations, boosters, uh, even for something like tetanus. Because they've weighed the odds of dying if they don't go through with it and they realize that rather die than get a shot or have blood drawn. Interesting. Yeah. To me, that's our greatest health crisis, 50 million Americans. And we're not even getting into numbers in the rest of the world. So what if we began to treat that as a health crisis? What if we began to look at the, experiences that cause people to be trypanophobic and it usually goes back to some early childhood trauma what if we worked on telling parents to never ever 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 say to your kid you you either act right in this doctor's office and take your shot or i'll really give you something to scream about when we get home yeah and then you want and then you wonder or how about uh or how about uh you uh, faint because in the fifth grade they decide to show a video of a heart transplant and you pass out and you're and the entire school makes fun of you for two years what about teaching empathy what about helping people understand that there are reasons why people have reactions that they do and everybody has a fear I mean, what, what, if we, what if we worked on that? Do you think that maybe we could at least make a dent on the huge health crisis of people not getting care that is available to them, of not taking preventive measures? And those preventive measures can stop them from getting seriously ill, potentially dying early, and they can also significantly reduce the taxation in terms of utilization of limited resources that we have for healthcare and help keep costs down for everybody else. I know it's crazy, you know, tack a problem in its root. It's weird. No, I, I totally get it. And I think, uh, you know, definitely from a healthcare crisis, um, I, I think, I, I, I think, you know, obviously awareness and um, understanding root cause of why why things are not having you know aren't improving and and obviously a shared goal that some people also don't want to be healthy i'm going to be honest like it just depends on education and what they're looking for and what's meaningful to them etc so we've got two different things we've got a healthcare crisis and then we have from my viewpoint the healthcare system being broken which is its own kind of problem right right and these are to me these are both things that need to be solved. You made your case very eloquently, and I couldn't agree more with everything 
you said, and I'm pointing out something that for me yeah. is something that I have lived with for as long as I've, been, I've consciously been alive. And I know many other people, when I, when I post about trypanophobia on social media, almost every time I do, I get a couple messages in my DMs from people saying, you know what? I have that too. It's a very common thing. Yeah. And if we could make some inroads on making a dent on that, more people would go through preventive health care. More people would do things that are presented as being of benefit to the larger community to stop the spread of dangerous diseases. And I could go down a line. Yeah. So that is a crisis. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, say, and saying man up or woman up or grow up is not going to solve it. So one of the things I love about podcasting is you and I have the opportunity to be the voice of our listeners and to share our own voices on our platforms and the platforms of our friends like you've done with me. So that's another thing that passionately motivates me aside from having an enemy to break or a problem to solve. It's also the opportunity to be a voice and if that voice positively impacts one person then it's worth the effort 100 percent. so what i'd like to do now as we're near the top here is i would like to extend an invitation to our listeners if you are curious leaning in wanting to know more about unlocking your business algorithm which we've covered at least in part through uh pop culture and lifestyle analogies, please, please, please visit Brandon's website at www.brandonsegal.com. And there you're going to find a lot more resources. Uh, He has other websites as well, one of which is www.flyhighbusinessbuilders.com. I encourage you to check all these out, locate Brandon on social media, connect with him, let him know that you heard him on the Business Creators Radio Show. And you'll see the links to his social media in the notes on this episode at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. And with that, Brandon Siegel, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been an absolute pleasure. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.